Hello, and welcome to Technicast, a podcast showcasing new research from across the arts and humanities. I'm Morag Thomas. Today, we're kicking off our theme on senses with a paper by Rachel Holmes. Rachel's paper on Beyond Human Communication and the Language of Birds speaks for itself, so I won't give too much away, but I'll be back for a question and answer session afterwards. We hope you enjoy. Hello, I'm Rachel Holmes, a doctorate student at Kingston University in the Department of Arts, Culture and Communication, and I'm really happy to take this opportunity to present my research. I've been on Technicast before with Rachel Hopkin when we discussed organising the Beyond Human Symposium, which took place in May 2022, when we invited speakers to respond to themes around Beyond Human Communication. So this idea of senses is really pertinent to my interest which is generally concerned with beyond human communication and how this has traditionally occurred in ritual and what kind of ontology or worldview is the proper context for ritual practice. I understand this to be an anti-capitalist and feminist project as the knowledge which I believe ritual is capable of producing is incompatible with the capitalist worldview orientated around objectivity, production, linear time and patriarchy in its current guise. My project is called The Language of Birds, which is a term I've borrowed from the ethnobotanist Dale Pendel, who wrote a beautiful trilogy of books called the Pharmacotrilogy, where he lists the mythic associations of various plants and the ways they've possessed and shamanized civilization to their ends. These plant spirits represent one formulation of the other or the beyond human. The language of birds is a form of communication with these beings through chance, sign and synchronicity like when you start noticing repeating digits on the clock and imagine angels are communicating with you. As an artist, I'm fascinated with the kind of meaning which can be derived from this symbolic form of communication and the experience of chance, which both seem to operate on non-linguistic registers. Birds in this sense represent winged beings, like angels, or those capable of psychic flight between dimensions. My initial interest in this idea of communicating with another developed after I read How Forests Think by Eduardo Kuhn, where he describes how the indigenous runa of the Ecuadorian Amazon relate to the forest as one entity, comprised of relationships which produce signs. The forest is the other which, which sustains their existence, surrounds them in myth, and from which they derive meaning. On a personal level, I'm really attracted to this way of being, in terms of the imaginative possibilities it opens. By decentralizing ourselves from our own egos, we are open to this possibility of wonder. But it also has a very important political ramification, in the sense that when we invite our environments into our social ecologies, we stop excluding them, and stop behaving in ways which are environmentally catastrophic. We learn how to coexist with the beyond human. So there is also a political motive in my work in terms of dignifying the natural world so that we'll stop destroying it. Problematically, it seems like exclusion has become normalized in our entire culture due to the industrial exclusion of women and racial minorities. However, as we are witnessing, the excluded never disappear. They just move into an excluded zone of what Julia Kristeva calls abjection. Abject persons, excluded from society, become identified with the impossible, with the contradiction of their own identities. Having been excluded, they are not supposed to exist and yet they do exist. Ultimately, this identification with the impossible becomes a sublime source of creative power and new forms of language, describing experiences which are totally foreign to the insiders. 
So my thesis opens with a theory of the other, a kind of wild twin that the work of art as redemption or metamorphosis is concerned with integrating. Ideally, this twin could be a nice fairy or a higher self, but we must also be truthful that in the mania of present history, built on the atrocities of slavery and dehumanization of entire races, these others exist as a social caste, and our relationship with others or difference has become extremely fraught. We don't know how to relate to difference, partly because capitalism is very cunning in absorbing difference into its logic and selling it back to us as fetish. We need to remember that existing difference is a relationship and not an identity. Relating to difference in this way is something which I argue we can learn from dreaming, as this involves essentially a relationship with the unconscious or forms of knowledge which bring us into the territory of the other. This was well known in the past, when we still honoured the dead. Elliot R. Wilson describes a sort of dream suicide which negates reality by remembering the future. He has a really interesting book called A Dream Interpreted Within a Dream, which shows us that all reality is constructed and dreaming is capable of revealing the slide that organizes our notions of truth. So by reversing the perspective from a daylight one to a nighttime one, where what appears to be real is revealed as a fabulation of what is unseen, we encounter the unseen other that lurks in the underworld. This is suicidal insofar as we discover that we are not the central storytellers, that there is a bigger imagination dreaming us, and maybe we're just actors in its play. I believe ritual is a practice which is capable of summoning this other in order to integrate it. Historically, magic and ritual practice was essentially concerned with this idea of astral communication. The idea of genius comes from the word genie, for example, and a pre-enlightenment sensibility that people had genies, ancestral or spiritual helpers who inspired them creatively and guided them. This is still recognized in cults of the Orishas and other diasporic African practices like Capoeira Angola. I think it's also still apparent in some modern cultural preoccupations like Pokemon, where a trainer essentially has a demonic helper who helps them in their destiny. Ancient demonology was situated in a platonic understanding of the person as having three parts. A soul capable of flight, not attached to the physical, an embodied personality, and an anima generic to all life. So we are looking at a way of seeing the world which is non-objectifying, decentralizes creative agency from the person, and is in flux. The Life of Plants by Emanuele Cosia develops this idea as a metaphysics of mixture, where he describes a celestial ontology which involves different levels of density through which sentience can migrate and mix as light. Gaston Bachelard refers similarly to this phenomenology of density when he describes the experience of lightness for souls capable of flight. I really recommend his work, Air and Dreams. This atmospheric theorizing opens the door for non-hegemonic forms of sentience, such as ancestral presence and the kind of beyond-human entities I've been describing. Recent scholarship suggests that music is also capable of collapsing the modern understanding of time and space. This sense of mixture can be experienced in the body as a form of intoxication, wherein normal cognition goes offline, making the body available for possession by beyond humans. So at the moment I'm painting a picture of the kind of world where magic could be possible. My understanding is that most magical practices involve astral communication with beyond humans. 
We must also at this point remember that historically women were persecuted as representations of this order of magic, most memorably during the witch hunt. Women occupy a taboo zone because they bear and rear children. Around this power becomes very ambiguous. In various matriarchal cults or anti-societies like Afro-Brazilian Candomblé, Haitian Voodoo or Sudanese Zar, this dangerous ambiguity is utilized for oracular purposes. But in a system which wants to centralize power around a supreme patriarch or what I like to think of as Odin, the one-eyed surveillance system hunting witches and making sure we are at work producing workers and consumers, this ambiguity and the power it implies is intolerable. So we must also be real that there is a kind of gender agenda underlying the possibilities of this course. We need to understand the cost of it and its political significance. There is a reason magic is no longer practiced. In the West, at least. The flux or intoxication I've described is not compatible with the linear experience of time required by capitalism, which quantifies and segregates everything in order to manage productivity. By contrast, I'm interested in developing a theory of time as chance, when the symbolic and the real collide in moments of chance or luck. This place of dissonance is most often occupied by clowns, and the Lakota Sioux cult of the Heoka is a really good example of the power of this, and the capacity of laughter to go to a place which confounds language. The Heoka are recognized in this sense as sacred clowns. The sacred zone is the abject zone, the place of non-knowledge. These ideas are contextual groundwork in order to interpret a vision fast I undertook in 2021 in Donegal, Ireland, where I fasted in a forest alone for four days and nights. In this time, I believe I experienced many of the things I've discussed. And most wonderfully, on the final morning, I found myself at the top of a hill as butterflies hatched around me and were hunted by swallows. This was a synchronicity that seemed like a form of communication with the forest, like I was speaking the language of birds. I believe whatever spoke to me wants me to write about it, wants us to remember it. Thanks very much for listening. And I'm now very happy to be joined by Rachel in our virtual studio. Hi, Rachel. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm very well. Thank you, Murag. How are you? Yeah, really well, thanks. Let's dive right in. So thank you for your paper. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And one of the things I found so interesting about it was the all the stuff you say about the radical political potential of beyond human communication. And I wondered if I could get you to talk to us a bit more about that, particularly what work do you think that decentering humanity can do, particularly in thinking through things like the climate crisis and the Anthropocene? Thanks. Um, that's a really interesting question. And I think a really good point to start on because um, I think for me, the really important thing about research is that it has some sort of real world applications, especially at the moment, because we are in this kind of cultural crisis, you know, and climate crisis. So the kind of radical political potential of beyond human agency is about basically our ontology. So how we exist in the world, how we see the world, how we relate to the world. And increasingly, I think we are going more and more into this kind of hyper objective sense of reality um, which has been kind of enhanced through capitalism where everything is objectified and then it becomes sexualized and then everything it kind of becomes about power whereas in the beyond human agency or in the ontology that I'm trying to describe these objective identities melt down a bit and so we kind of are in more of a 
what you would kind of consider to be a kind of trance way of seeing the world, which is, I think, more inherent to nature. So, for example, when you spend time in nature, you kind of lose this sense of identity um, and especially identity as a social construct. Um, so, for example, identity as a woman, a man, someone with a job, these ways of life, which are just totally orientated around our capitalistic existence. And I think, you know, there was definitely a time in humanity, in fact, for the vast majority of our kind of race's history, we didn't exist like this, you know, we didn't have these kind of identities. And so now these things are really colonizing our experiences and the world. And I think it's really important to kind of basically reclaim human nature and reclaim human nature as part of nature. Um, because going too far, you know, it's destroying the world, but I think it's also beginning to destroy our psyches um, and our ways of relating to each other, kind of forms of community, resilience, you know, essentially literally what it means to be a human being. And I think, you know, we always kind of wage politics on a very ideological kind of level in, in terms of politically ideological. This is ideological as well, of course. But it's also kind of more a form of, let's say, of culture as politics, you know. Politics isn't just something that happens when we are, you know, subscribing to a political party or going to a protest. It's also, you know, how we engage with the world. That's so interesting. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And it kind of brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. So one of the points that I thought was really fascinating in your paper was what you said about Western capitalism's fraught relationship with difference and how difference can be both degraded, but also fetishized and kind of sold back to us. And I really liked what you said about existing indifference as being a relationship and not an identity. And I was wondering if I could get you to expand on that point a little bit, just because I think it's fascinating. Thank you. Creating a concept of difference is one of the main parts of my project. And what I've kind of seen through my research is that, you know, at least in the kind of cultural milieu that I exist in, there is not actually really a, a very strong concept of difference. In fact, it's more, we kind of understand difference through similarity. So we kind of differentiate ourselves by becoming similar, you know, in terms of, for example, I might want to differentiate myself from you by kind of, you know, becoming similar to someone else. And this is kind of inscribed in various different philosophies in the West um, or Western kind of philosophical traditions. Um, so for example, we can take Lacan's kind of theory of the semblable when a young an infant is kind of gaining identity for the first time. It's through projecting similarity onto an external object, for example, a doll. So they find identity through kind of claiming similarity to something. And by existing in difference, it's quite still a bit difficult to kind of concisely describe, but it is more about how identity isn't something which is static or isn't something which is always complete. So that means that we need to exist without being you know, completely defined in who we are, being completely defined as objects, but understanding that, you know, identity is always porous, it's always changing, so we're always existing in difference. And that means that our relationships, there will be some antagonism in them, you know, there will always be conflict in all of our interpersonal relationships and in the way we exist in the world. And I think that through kind of understanding difference through similarity, there's kind of this idea that we can avoid this kind of conflict. So, you know, we have these kind of ideas of diversity, which is kind of rather than leaving these antagonisms in place and allowing them to generate something creative and interesting, we kind of try to um, dull it down so that it's like, what do we have in common? And let's focus on that, where it's like, maybe we should actually focus on our differences and focus a bit on the conflict and learn to be able to live in conflict, because that's 
that's what the world is. That's what being in nature is, I think, you know, it's it's about kind of retaining a sense of this wildness where you know that in some some level you are not necessarily competing, but in some level you're kind of at odds with the things around you. And rather than kind of running away from that, it's how do I, how does that inform who I am and how I exist? That's kind of where I'm heading with the kind of concept of difference. I think what you're saying there about staying with the with the conflict and stay, staying with the trouble, I guess, um, you could say, the quote Donna Haraway, sitting in that discomfort that comes with having an identity that's in flux. Yeah, I think you, you actually use a really good word there, which is discomfort. I think that's exactly kind of maybe what I was what I was looking for. Um, I think it's this, we've become a bit too complacent and needing to be comfortable. Um, whereas I think to be an adult, to be a, a mature agent, that involves dealing with discomfort. Um, and I think we need a culture which is going to equip us to do that rather than to kind of always place kind of comfort as the like top kind of virtue or the top thing you're heading for interesting so can I get you to expand on that a bit so what do you think because just talking about the the real world application of research what do you think the real world application of engendering a comfort with discomfort could be well I can only kind of speak to my own experience and the kind of let's say transformation that I've been having over my um doctorate degree um and I think, you know, you, we, we kind of are raised with this idea that, you know, you want to have a career or you have these kind of values that you want to fulfill in your life, which will bring you basically to a sense of comfort, you know, a nice pension, a nice house. And that's all, you know, important and good. Um, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't aim for those things, but it's kind of, you know, what happens if you kind of reorientate yourself to, or at least what happens if I reorientate myself to kind of place meaning as the top level? And all of the discomfort that that will involve. For example, I'm, you know, I'm a practicing artist. I have capoeira Angola practice, and these things are, you know, always bringing me into kind of some level of risk and discomfort because they're not traditional pastimes or kind of career aspirations. Yeah, it's just kind of learning to accept that, you know, to to follow these paths or these things will involve some discomfort. And but I think that's kind of more ecological because then you're creating meaning in the world. You know, you're you're not creating comfort for yourself. You're kind of creating meaning. And we can, of course, do that through different ways, you know, through through academia, through sciences, through arts, through politics, through anything. But it's just the sense that maybe, you know, we need to be a bit more real about the kind of call that meaning makes. And it can be one which is very uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really fascinating. So speaking of meaning making, the other thing I wanted to ask you about in your paper was I was noticing that you're kind of drawing from all these different cultural traditions. So just to name a few examples in your paper, you speak about the beliefs of the Lakota Sioux, you talk about the Norse god Odin. And I was wondering if I could get you to talk a bit about this kind of global transcultural approach that you're taking. Um, and could you talk a bit about what do you see as the benefits, but also as maybe some of the challenges of operating kind of beyond one intellectual tradition? So the kind of worldview that I'm kind of drawing out through, you know, these these various references is kind of what I've described as a pre-industrial worldview. So the kind of um, cultural mythologies that existed before the witch hunt, um, the witch hunt then kind of paving the foundation for slavery, modern slavery. So we're kind of talking about kind of medieval sensibility and something beyond that. Um, when, for example, I think actually Foucault talks about how back in the day um, in Paris and France and in continental Europe, 
Um, there were no asylums, you know, madness was something that was just kind of on the streets, but it was kind of accepted that there was some sort of divine madness, you know, whether or not that's still still a paradigm we want to work work with is, you know, an, another question. But it was just a kind of a worldview which was kind of more mythological and what I would say pre-industrial. And there seems to be some sort of similarities in this across the world. And this is actually kind of distilled in a kind of old intellectual tradition, which was called the mythopoetic. So the kind of one of the main writers that I'm um, referring to in my research is this ethnobotanist called Dale Pendel. And so he has a very um, mythopoetic approach. And that's something that my work is kind of investigating, but kind of from the outside at the moment. Um, and this is also inspired by um, kind of the main philosophical thought that provides the framework of my work, which comes from this guy called George Bataille. And he has an essay called The Sorcerer's Apprentice, where he talks about something called living myth. So living myth is a metaphor for this pre-industrial worldview. And so that, you know, tends to prioritize ritual practice. It's a lot about oral histories. It's a lot about passing information through storytelling, mythology. It's kind of a time, you know, when closer to this non-objective way of being that I described previously, that I think has a lot of water, like fresh water for this time, um, because it has a way of kind of dignifying nature by personifying it, by kind of giving it access to our experience. You know, I think in a lot of mythological traditions, the kind of the plot is orientated outwards, you know, it's it's not the humans running the show, it's the gods or nature, it's we're kind of at their beck and call. And so it was just when we existed in a, in a different kind of order of the in the world. And then all of that basically was very traumatically destroyed during the witch hunt. Um, and there isn't actually a lot of research at all about the, the witch hunt and the worldview that it was persecuting. And I think that's something that's really important, um, not just, you know, from a feminist viewpoint, but in terms of how kind of feminist theory speaks to, you know, modern politics, because th this was an attack on a world system um, for political purposes, you know, to, to disenfranchise classes and enfranchise a, a capitalist class. Yeah, I think that's fascinating about this different way of relating to the world and imagining a different position for ourselves in it. I think that's absolutely so interesting. The other thing I'd really like to ask you about is your vision fast, which um, you say is kind of part of your artistic practice. Um, I'm wondering if I can ask you a bit about what that looked like um, in terms of the embodied experience of it. So where did you go, first of all? So I went with this um, organisation called Wild Awake Ireland um, to Donegal in Ireland or Northern Ireland, depending on your sensibility. I am half Northern Irish. I was born in Hong Kong and then I um, moved to Northern Ireland when I was eight. And my father's family is Northern Irish. So when I kind of, you know, because I've been aware of these practices for a while because of my readings through, throughout my 20s of, of kind of North American indigenous literature and vision fasting. Um, but for me, it was really when I kind of saw this call out because it was happening in my country it made a lot of sense for me to apply because I think it's, at least for me, it's important to undertake these kind of rituals and landscapes that you have some relationship with. So we went to a forest in Donegal um, and we stayed in a cottage for three days before, well, actually we were all camping. There was about 12 of us um, camping at this site nearby this forest. 
for three days before and after we kind of did circles or we were kind of sharing the reasons that we were being there and then you know what happened during our vision fast and then for the four days we went into kind of solitary sites that we had picked out ourselves in the forest um we weren't we had no contact with each other and we were um not eating sleeping under um kind of we weren't even in tents at that point we were just kind of under these um i can't remember what they're called but kind of like a just like a make do roof like kind of like a tent without walls just like a ceiling just sleeping under that in a sleeping bag and I kind of found I scouted a little site underneath this birch tree in a kind of a stone circle which I think might have been used to enclose animals in a very very long time ago um, but it was actually a really beautiful place to stay because it was kind of like a natural chamber it was like a the birch tree was very very old so it was very big and it kind of created this like canopy ceiling and then it was framed by these stones and I was in the middle. That's so interesting that where you were staying had previously been used for animal husbandry because there's something I think really interesting in there about how I think humans like to see themselves as separate from the world but actually the material world and the animal world and the, the natural world but actually we've always been in relationship with it and have never been able to be separate from it. So can I get you to tell me a bit about what a vision fast is? So are you kind of blindfolded or how does it how does it work? So vision fasting, the kind of reference to vision isn't, is it actually about sight in that sense? The kind of history of it, at least from what I've understood from some reading I've done with these authors like Black Elk or John Lame Fire Deer, is that among the indigenous North Americans, I think around the time you reach puberty, you know, when you would normally have kind of initiation ceremonies in various cultures, you know, for example, in Judaism or, or others, um, they would go into the into the wilderness for four days and just be alone without eating for four days. That vision fasting is probably much more extreme because we had water. I'm not sure if they even bring water with them. Um, they tend probably in much kind of harsher climates. You know, Ireland has got quite a mild climate and the landscape isn't, you know, like, like like North American um it isn't as kind of grand there isn't kind of the same kind of predators around so you're kind of putting yourself into this uh, state of quite extreme deprivation to kind of generate a vision you know a dream or something which will kind of inform the rest of your life you know and the kind of traditional vision fasting with these indigenous Americans you kind of get a name from this experience or you get your kind of place in tribal's traditional society I mean, another thing about vision fasting is they also say it can be kind of precluded by a, a dream. So you will have a dream that calls you to the fast. And I think that did actually happen with me. Um, during lockdown, I had a really, really vivid dream of this yellow bird. Um, at my in the, in the dream, I was at my home in Northern Ireland. Um, and it was kind of like being in a virtual reality. It was incredibly vivid. And um, I think it, it did kind of mark a bit of a psychic transformation. Um, and it did happen during lockdown in this kind of ambiguous zone or ambiguous state um, where these kind of strange things are meant to happen um so the vision fasting the vision reference is more about a kind of vision of your life right interesting interesting so there's something in there about which i think i can kind of recognize from various religious or spiritual traditions across the world of a practitioner denies oneself and then is later spiritually or emotionally rewarded for that sacrifice. Does that kind of ring true to how it felt for you that you were kind of denying yourself and then were kind of rewarded spiritually? So you're kind of talking about sacrifice. I think the kind of deprivation in terms of not eating and not being around people, 
I don't necessarily think that was the sacrifice. I think that was more the kind of tools of the ritual, you know, the thing to put you in the trance. Because, you know, by the end of the four days, I was like tripping, you know, I had nothing to eat. Um, I was in like, I was in fairyland, you know, because your blood sugar goes really low. So you're, you're in a different place. So that wasn't necessarily the sacrifice. But what I would say I think is the kind of sacrifice in this is the time that you're giving. So you're kind of taking four days out of your life. And, you know, nowadays, four days is a lot of time, you know, because we have we're so kind of organized around work and family and everything else. So I think there is a I do believe that there is a sense that in some ways you're kind of dedicating. And four days has this kind of mythic. Uh, connotations in a lot of different cultures for some reason uh, I've, uh, there's lots of different reasons but um yeah so in, on some level you do sense that I'm giving four of my days to in this in this sense I would say to nature for nature to kind of like you know look at my life and make you know it's kind of like you're going to a court of I don't know angels or whatever for them to kind of look at your life and be a bit like hmm what's next but you can also say, you know, if you want to look at it in a more kind of mundane perspective, I think it's also just time for your own brain to kind of process your own life events. Because I think we're always so kind of living in the future. It's like we're always inputting data into our computers, but the computers aren't always necessarily getting the time to synthesize that information. You know, all of the past, everything you want for the future, what you want for the present. And I think that can have a really profound effect. Because we need to kind of deal with with ourselves as well as these kind of social imaginative beings, you know, with this kind of higher calling or higher purposes. And you need to give yourself time to kind of find out who you are, let's say. Absolutely. So what I was actually going to ask you next was, were you scared? Because um, for me, this I, I don't know, there's something about going into that experience that I think I would find quite unnerving in many ways it sounds like for you it was quite a a peaceful and kind of rewarding experience um does that would is that a fair characterization I mean for me you know because it was in Northern Ireland and I kind of know the kind of risks because you know I spend a lot of time in the countryside um I've camped a lot in Northern Ireland I've done a lot of camping in general and also we were there with this kind of organization that you've paid some sort of insurance to. So it wasn't that scary. I imagine if you were a young man in, in a North American indigenous tribe, just kind of in the middle of nowhere without those kind of commercial safety nets, it would probably be a different kind of ordeal. But I wasn't scared um, because I was at home. I knew I, knew I was safe. I spent a lot of time outdoors, like I said, in camping. It was a really nice time. I felt really happy. Actually, I was really sad to leave the fast. It was incredible. It was a really life-changing experience. And I kind of recommend everyone to do it because it just changes as well. I think your register, when you're in kind of in an urban environment like I'm in right now, you're getting so much kind of stimulus, so much inputs. Your body is really kind of working in a really unnatural way, let's say. The food that we're eating, the water that we're drinking... But when you spend time in nature, you're kind of reprogramming your software a bit because you're just getting different inputs. So you're going to produce different outputs. And I think that you can, when you actually experience that, you know, emotionally, whatever, it's really profound and, and beautiful. And I think, especially now, this is something that everyone should do if they if they have the opportunity, but with some kind of preparation, you know, like... I don't think you should just go there. You know, it's it's not like just like going on holiday to Ibiza or something. It's kind of like, you know, it has to come at a correct time in your life when things are kind of aligning for this kind of experience. Well, do you know what? You've convinced me. I'm sold. I might, <laughs> I'm definitely going to try and make more time to spend time in nature. I think this is probably a great place to leave it. So 
thank you so much Rachel this has been really really fascinating thanks so much uh, for taking the time to you know interview me and hear what I have to say and I hope that your listeners also find it interesting and informative a huge thank you again to Rachel and to all our contributors if you would be interested in sharing your research with us please do get in touch through the email address in the bio thank you for listening and we'll see you again soon